0: 409, chapters 11 and 12 of the Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 1350. Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, And I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 409, Like a Top. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello! How are you? I hope you are well. Everything is great here, and mostly it's great because of all the fabulous, fabulous people I have been able to talk to this week. Except Dawn. Dawn was sick this week, and so we weren't able to talk to her on our crafty chat day. But, so as to waste no time, we'll jump in into our crafty chat that Erica and I had, and... Go from there.
1: So this was my most recent. I haven't touched it in a while. Spindle spinning. What kind of fiber is that? This is it's from bee mice elf, which is like the animal b b e e mice m i c e and elf e l f. Here it's easier to see the colors looking at the fiber. So there's wow. there's yellow and orange and brown and then there's undyed bits oh. and it's a roving and it's it's gorgeous, gorgeous, very Erica colors, fall colors. So I'm I'm interested to see how it turns out because a lot of times I find that I'll be attracted to a multicolored roving and I think it looks gorgeous in, in the roving in the braid. Mm -hmm. And then when it's made up, I don't like it. So uh, because I tend not to like barber pulling. Yeah. If you're not a spinner, that's exactly what it sounds like. It looks like a, a candy cane. Yeah. Two different colors wrapped around each other like that. And I tend not to like that in the yarn. I may like the occasional marled sweater that's knit from that kind of yarn, but it's just not my thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not me. So I, t- I tend more toward the tonal. So we shall see. But this, the singles on this are quite fine. Wow. Um, so how do you dye when you dye? What do you use? When I dye, I use some inexpensive acid dyes from Dharma Trading Company. And I have some dedicated pots, uh, dedicated a dedicated crock pot and a dedicated spaghetti pot that i use at home and try not to make too bad a mess i think i finally have the red dye off my stove that i got on there the first time i tried to dye on the stove so it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun it's playing it's i take a dye class occasionally through my local park and rec and it's it's a really good class and it's actually easier for me to do the dyeing at class because they have more Oh yeah, stuff. You don't have a white ceramic or porcelain stovetop, do you?
0: What is it that you've
1: got?
2: <gasps> well, yes, am- I do.
1: Why, yes, I do. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> Just like I have a white sink. Oh, yeah. So, have you tried doing Kool-Aid dyeing? I tried that before. Definitely the acid dyes are are better at least in, in my mind, they stay better. And yeah, I think for anything I've ser- I've that's going to be washed more than several right. times in its lifetime, I think acidize and for lighter weight stuff, that Kool-Aid's just fine. Right. But the, the Kool-Aid method is fun for doing at home. If you're not sure if this is something that you're going to do very often mm-hmm. and you want to use your regular pots and pans, mm-hmm. you don't want to have to have dedicated, stuff because kool-aid is food it is therefore food safe <laughs> so terrifying. you're not ruining you're not ruining your pans i have dedicated stuff for dyeing so that i don't kill my family yeah
0: no so, the Kool-Aid,
1: i used to do a kool-aid class when i was teaching knitting and
0: stuff in in tucson and the the other thing that i noticed about doing the kool-aid dyeing was your yarn smelled really good when you were done because <laughs> it kind of had that fruity you know the fruit flavored gum from your childhood you're like oh yeah, if, if oh, you yeah. like that smell if you don't like that smell it's a problem it's a, it's a horror if you don't like that smell but it's um the other thing that i was surprised by is the range of color that you could get out of the kool-aid packets and there's a sure. a chart i think on nitty from 2000 oh from a long
1: time ago yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a long one and you can see there's Huge range of colors, and of course, terrifyingly, they are permanent. If you use, you have to add acid, so you add vinegar initially. Mm. So you get that the vinegar slash fruit smell when you're doing the dyeing is kind of dicey. But
1: and all the moms will hate me, but hey, teenagers, because your hair is animal fiber, just like wool is, Kool Aid will dye your hair.
2: That's and right. And it doesn't.
1: Watch it. it. It's just as permanent as, as hair dye, unless so. they don't use vinegar. Unless they don't well, use vinegar, but money. if you use the vinegar, it's nice and, and permanent and you could get some wacky colors. I'd imagine they don't work very well on dark hair, you know, yeah. best on, on light colored hair. Hence with my hair, not something I've ever tried, but huh? uh, I have actually seen Kool-Aid dyed hair before. and it's uh, Oh, yeah. So, some comments oh. here um, oh, that this was a perfect time for a dyeing conversation with Easter egg dyes coming <gasps> yes, at right. any moment. Right after Easter, they will be on clearance for next to nothing. And if you want to play with dyeing, buy them up. Um, yes, that's right. Because just like Kool-Aid, they're food safe because they're meant for using on food. Yep. And they can be a lot of fun to play with. Who who left so. that comment? Crooked Knits. <gasps> cool. And. Apparently, A.T. Has, has done some dyeing also. Um, does not spin, but has done dyeing. Yes. And uh, there was more discussion of dyeing and using. There's also a way to use old silk ties to dye your Easter what? eggs. What? Um, more information, yes. please. And I'll look up the link. I learned how to do it from Wendy Bernard's blog, knitandtonic.net. And I did that one year. It was, it was a lot of fun. You buy some old ties at thrift shop. and um, They have to be silk. And you can do that. And then also, AT has done it where you use the old ties to transfer dye onto silk scarves. Ooh. And, you, and she, found, she found the instructions for that. AT, please email those to, to Heather so that she can link that yeah. in the show notes. That that would be the kind of thing you can do at home.
0: Well, I hope you are inspired to pick up a spindle or some fiber or something. Uh, there was lots more informational-wise on the Crafty Chat video this week. And you can get there if you go to youtube.com slash lowercase letter C slash craftlit dash channel. I've done a better job of linking out to that from our website at craftlit.com for a reason, and I'm going to play you a voicemail that begins with crochet and ends with the reason why I've changed the sidebar on the show notes. Here you go.
2: Hi Heather, this is Barbara Altman, a.k.a. Pochke out in Santa Barbara. I did have a couple comments about the Crafty Chat stuff. Number one is, I've been doing that crochet stitch that Don showed and i love it too i'm finding it to be amazingly different from the crochet that i've done in the past which is all stiff hard stuff I i only crochet like um household items basically because i can't imagine wearing anything couldn't imagine wearing anything crocheted but now i've made a cowl. i'm making a a nice little skull cap for my daughter and all in this special stitch which partly what's drawn me in is that it's just fabulous with hand-painted yarn it's on my project page my, my Ravelry ideas, is if you want to see them. And, okay, that's it for number one. Number two was I, I'm under the impression that you're doing a live chat and that people can, like, comment and watch along live, but I haven't been able to figure out when or how to join in on that. Can you make that clearer on your next episode to let me know when the next one is and how to join in? So I'm um, looking forward to hearing
0: from you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Barbara. I'm so hugely apologetic. I realize that I made a comment about the YouTube video for the first week that we did it, and then I kind of stopped explaining about it because I was worried that it was going to get boring, and I I have a habit of doing that. I'm so afraid that I'm going to bore everybody's pants off that I don't repeat useful information sometimes that needs to be repeated. So, youtube.com slash little letter C slash craftlet dash channel. That gets you to the channel where everything is. However, if you don't remember that, or you don't want to go there, go to craftlet.com, and you'll see in the sidebar a Watch Us On Tuesdays sidebar, little buttony thing, that will show you the last week's Crafty Chat. Now, they are happening every week on Tuesday at 1.30 in the afternoon on Eastern Time. So what are we on now? Eastern Daylight Time. So that's 12.30 Central and 10.30 Pacific. And I do have on the YouTube channel for the Crafty Chat playlist, if you look there, I actually do have a link to a time zone converter. So if you need it, it is there. So if you go to the channel, you will see down towards the bottom of the front page, it'll say Upcoming live streams. When the live stream is live, that will take you to a page where you see the whole thing happening in real time. And there is a chat window. This is different from the comments that you see underneath YouTube videos. This is a live chat window where Erica can read your comments and questions, and we all can respond to them. So there is a level of interactivity that you just don't get with the podcast. And of course, not only that, but you can see what we're talking about. So for instance, this last week, There were things that I've talked about on the podcast easily over the last 10 years that I've mentioned before, but you've never seen them. And now the people who were in the live chat, the live stream, they saw it. And that video is now sitting there in our channel's playlist for Crafty Chats. And you can go watch it anytime you want. And fast-wind through stuff you don't feel particularly interested in. And uh, underneath each video in the little comments window, there are links to the individual moments. So you can kind of, you know, skim. It's like a table of contents. Skim, see what you want to look at, click on the time code, and it'll take you there in the video. So it's a little more surgical than the podcast, which is kind of nice. So Barbara, I hope that helps. I'm so sorry about that and I hope more of you can come. We have a pretty steady number of people. We had a few new people this week, which was awesome. It was so nice to see your names, and it's always fun. It's always fun, and it's great when you guys comment and ask questions. It's a lot of fun for us. So that is good stuff. But Erica was not the only fabulous person who I got to talk to this week. I was also able to get on Skype and talk with listener Sarah who has been with us since The Scarlet Letter. So, no slouch, Sarah. She is the Dumas scholar who wrote in a couple of weeks ago and I I implied that we were going to have a chance to talk in the future. And we did and we're going to do this again as we go through the book. There are places where I think Sarah can really go a long way towards clarifying some things, especially that might be frustrating or or hard to understand for an English-speaking audience, especially an American English-speaking audience. There are going to be a couple of things that impact our chapters that we listen to today, and there are many things from our conversation today that I won't be able to play for you right now, because spoilers, but I will be able to play them for you in the future. So Sarah's lovely voice is a voice that you will get used to hearing as we go through the book. So let's hop to it. I'm going to use some of Sarah's conversation with me to lead into our chapters today, and then we will talk more after we listen to the chapters, because there is some stuff that I don't want to give away before you hear it. All right, so to lead us in, remember that last week, V4 went to the king and was able to tell him that Napoleon was on his way. And that rather
3: shook things up a little bit. Speaking about uh, the return of Napoleon, they are scared.
0: I was surprised at how Blase the king was in the beginning, until he finds out that no, it's not a threat, it's happening. Or it has already happened, he has already landed. And
3: he he sounds blase because he doesn't understand the danger at first, uh, because he doesn't know his people. At one point, he says that when he was in England, he 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 was he lived in England for fifteen years or or twenty years during the French Revolution. That he had worked hard. That he worked hard to understand his people um, in order to come back and to reign. But of course he wasn't there during all those years. You can see in the way Blackass talks to him and uh, all this etiquette thing, the ceremony and the way you cannot ask a question to the king and all that, that he was absolutely incapable of understanding the people. So he didn't know what people wanted. Uh, And that's why he was so mistaken about about the real danger of Napoleon coming back. And you know what? I thought in the last episode you talked about um, the Latin quotations in the previous chapter when the king makes annotations in his book, in his Horace. I thought that. It was actually quite clever from Dumas to not to translate the quotations, because it shows how much that king was he was living in another world. He didn't know what people could understand, what they want, what their culture was, what their references were. And so he speaks Latin and he jokes in Latin, even to Blackass, who is, of course, an aristocrat, quite educated, but he doesn't understand Latin. And so I think that Dumas, Dumas could have translated the quotations, but he didn't, in order to give us the, the kind of feeling of this strangeness, of this gap between the king. And the people, we are like his people, and he doesn't understand us, or we don't understand him.
0: So we will be picking up right at the end of the conversation that we, we left off on, and see how the king is going to respond to all of this. It's not that he's he's an idiot, and it's not that he's off in la land. He's just kind of deluded about his his place in the grand scheme of things. So... We will get to see how he's going to deal with this new, rather scary, piece of news. All right, let's listen.
4: Chapter 11. The Corsican Ogre. At the sight of this agitation, Louis XVIII pushed from him violently the table at which he was sitting. What ails you, Baron? "'he exclaimed. "'You appear quite aghast. "'Has your uneasiness anything to do "'with what Monsieur de Blacas has told me, "'and Monsieur de Villefort has just confirmed?' Monsieur de Blacas moved suddenly towards the baron, "'but the fright of the courtier "'pleaded for the forbearance of the statesman, "'and besides, as matters were, "'it was much more to his advantage "'that the prefect of police should triumph over him "'than that he should humiliate the prefect.' Sire," stammered the baron. "Well, what is it?" asked Louis Eighteenth. The minister of police, giving way to an impulse of despair, was about to throw himself at the feet of Louis Eighteenth, who retreated a step and frowned. "Will you speak?" he said. "Oh, sire, what a dreadful misfortune! I am indeed to be pitied. I can never forgive myself," Monsieur," said Louis Eighteenth. I command you to speak. a oh, well, sire, the usurper left Elba on the 26th of February and landed on the 1st of March. And where? In Italy, asked the king eagerly. In France, sir, at a small port near Antibes in the Gulf of Juan. The usurper landed in France near Antibes in the Gulf of Juan 250 leagues from Paris on the 1st of March, and you only acquire this information today, the 4th of March? Well, sir, what you tell me is impossible. You must have received a false report, or you have gone mad. Alas, sire, it is but too true. Louis made a gesture of indescribable anger and alarm and then drew himself up as if this sudden blow had struck him at the same moment in heart and countenance. "'In France!' he cried. "'The usurper in France? "'Then they did not watch over this man. "'Who knows, they were perhaps in league with him?' "'Oh, sire!' exclaimed the Duke de Blacroix.
2: "'Monsieur
4: Dondre is not a man to be accused of treason. "'Sire, we have all been blind, and the minister of police... I share the general blindness, that is all. But, said Villefort, and then suddenly checking himself, he was silent. Then he continued. Your pardon, sire, he said, bowing. My zeal carried me away. Will your majesty deign to excuse me? Speak, sir, speak boldly, replied Louis. You alone forewarned us of the evil. Now try and aid us. With the remedy. Sire, said Villefort, the usurper is detested in the south, and it seems to me that if he ventured into the south, it would be easy to raise a dock and Provence against him. Yes, assuredly, replied the Minister. But he is advancing by Gap and Cisteron. Advancing? He is advancing? said Louis eighteenth. Is he then advancing on Paris? THE MINISTER OF POLICE MAINTAINED A SILENCE WHICH WAS EQUIVALENT TO A COMPLETE avowal. "'And Dauphin, sir?' inquired the king of Villefort. "'Do you think it is possible to rouse that as well as Provence?' "'Sire, I am sorry to tell your majesty a cruel fact, "'but the feeling in Dauphin is quite the reverse of that in Provence or Languedoc. "'The mountaineers are bonapartists, sire.' Then, murmured Louis, he was well informed, and how many men had he with him? "'I do not know, sire,' answered the Minister of Police. "'What? You do not know? Have you neglected to obtain information on that point?' "'Of course it is of no consequence,' he added with a withering smile. "'Sire, it was impossible to learn. Uh, The dispatch simply stated the fact of the landing.' And the route taken by the usurper, and how did this dispatch reach you? Inquired the king. The minister bowed his head, and while a deep color overspread his cheeks, he stammered out, "By the telegraph, sire." Louis Eighteenth advanced a step, and folded his arms over his chest, as Napoleon would have done. So then, he exclaimed, turning pale with anger. Seven conjoined and allied armies overthrow that man. A miracle of heaven replaced me on the throne of my fathers after five and twenty years of exile. I have, during those five and twenty years, spared no pains to understand the people of France and the interests which were confided to me. And now, when I see the fruition of my wishes almost within reach, the power I hold in my hands bursts, and shatters me to atoms. Sire, it is a fatality, murmured the minister, feeling that the pressure of circumstances, however light a thing to destiny, was too much for any human strength to endure. What our enemies say of us is then true. We have learnt nothing, forgotten nothing. If I were betrayed as he was, I would console myself but to be in the midst of persons elevated by myself to places of honour, who ought to watch over me more carefully than of over themselves, for my fortune is theirs, before me they were nothing. After me, they will be nothing, and perish miserably from incapacity, ineptitude. Oh, yes, sir, you are right. It is fatality.' The minister quailed before this outburst of sarcasm. Monsieur de Blacas wiped the moisture from his brow. Villefort smiled within himself, for he felt his increased importance. "'To fall,' continued King Louis, who at the first glance had sounded the abyss on which the monarchy hung suspended. "'To fall? And learn of that fall by my telegraph? "'Oh, I would rather mount the scaffold of my brother.' Louis XVI, than thus descend the staircase at the Tuileries, driven away by ridicule. Ridicule, sir! Why, you know not its power in France, and yet you ought to know it! Sire, sire, murmured the minister, for pity's, Approach, monsieur de Villefort, resumed the king, addressing the young man, who motionless and breathless was listening to a conversation on which depended the destiny of a kingdom." "'Approach, and tell monsieur that it is possible to know beforehand all that he has not known. "'Sire, it was really impossible to learn secrets which that man concealed from all the world. "'Really impossible? "'Yes, that is a great word, sir. "'Unfortunately, there are great words, as there are great men. "'I have measured them. "'Really impossible for a minister who has an office.' Agents, spies, and fifteen hundred thousand francs for secret service money to know what is going on at sixty leagues from the coast of France? Well then, see, here is a gentleman who had none of these resources at his disposal. A gentleman, only a simple magistrate, who learned more than you with all your police and who would have saved my crown if, like you, he had the power of directing a telegraph. The look of the Minister of Police was turned with concentrated spite on Villefort, who bent his head in modest triumph. "'I do not mean that for you, Blacas," continued Louis XVIII, for if you have discovered nothing, at least you have had the good sense to persevere in your suspicions, any other than yourself would have considered the disclosure of Monsieur de Villefort insignificant, or else dictated by venal ambition.' These words were an allusion to the sentiments which the minister of police had uttered with so much confidence an hour before. Villefort understood the king's intent. Any other person would perhaps have been overcome by such an intoxicating draft of praise, but he feared to make for himself a mortal enemy of the police minister, although he saw that D'Andre was irrevocably lost. In fact, the minister, who in the plenitude of his power had been unable to unearth Napoleon's secret, might in despair at his own downfall interrogate Dante, and so lay bare the motives of Villefort's plot. Realizing this, Villefort came to the rescue of the crestfallen minister, instead of aiding to crush him. "'Sire,' said Villefort, "'the suddenness of this event must prove to your majesty "'that the issue is in the hands of Providence.' What your majesty is pleased to attribute to me as profound perspicacity is simply owing to chance, and I have profited by that chance like a good and devoted servant. That's all. Do not attribute to me more than I deserve, sire, that your majesty may never have occasion to recall the first opinion you are pleased to form of me. The minister of police thanked the young man by an eloquent look and Villefort understood that he had succeeded in his design. That is to say that without forforting the gratitude of the king, he had made a friend of one on whom, in case of necessity, he might rely. "'It is well,' resumed the king. "'And now, gentlemen,' he continued, turning towards Monsieur de Blacas and the Minister of Police, "'I have no further occasion for you, and you may retire.' What now remains to do is in the department of the Minister of War. Fortunately, sire, said Monsieur de Blacca, we can rely on the army. Your Majesty knows how every report confirms their loyalty and attachment. Do not mention reports, Duke, to me, for I know now what confidence to place in them. Yet speaking of reports, Baron... "'What have you learned with regard to the affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques?' "'The affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques,' exclaimed Villefort, unable to repress an exclamation. Then suddenly pausing, he added, "'Your pardon, sire, but my devotion to your majesty has made me forget not the respect I have, for that is too deeply engraved in my heart, but the rules of etiquette. "'Go on, go on, sir,' "'replied the king. "'You have to-day earned the right to make inquiries here.' "'Sire,' interposed the Minister of Police, "'I came a moment ago to give your Majesty fresh information "'which I had obtained on his head, "'when your Majesty's attention was attracted by the terrible event "'that has occurred in the Gulf, "'and now these facts will cease to interest your Majesty.' "'On the contrary, sir,' on the contrary said louis eighteenth this affair seems to me to have a decided connection with that which occupies our attention and the death of general quenelle will perhaps put us on the direct track of a great internal conspiracy at the name of general quenelle villefort trembled everything points to the conclusion sire said the minister of police that death was not the result of suicide, as we first believed, but of assassination. General Connell, it appears, had just left a Bonapartist club when he disappeared. An unknown person had been with him that morning and made an appointment with him in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Unfortunately, the generous valet, who was dressing his hair at the moment when the stranger entered, heard the street mentioned, but did not catch the number. As the police minister related this to the king, Villefort, who looked as if his very life hung on the speaker's lips, turned alternately red and pale. The king looked towards him. Do you not think with me, Monsieur de Villefort, that General Canel, whom they believe attached to the usurper, but who was really entirely devoted to me, has perished the victim of a Bonapartist ambush. ''It is probable, sire,'' replied Villefort, ''but is this all that is known?'' ''They are on the track of the man who appointed the meeting with him.'' ''On his track?'' said Villefort. ''Yes, the servant has given his description. He is a man of from fifty to fifty-two years of age, dark, with black eyes, covered with shaggy eyebrows,'' and a thick moustache. He was dressed in a blue frock coat, buttoned up to the chin, and wore at his buttonhole the rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honor. Yesterday a person exactly corresponding with this description was followed, but he was lost sight of at the corner of the Rue de la Jussienne and the Rue Coque-Heron. Villefort leaned on the back of an armchair for as the Minister of Police went on speaking, he felt his legs bend under him. But when he learned that the unknown had escaped the vigilance of the agent who followed him, he breathed again. Continue to seek for this man, sir, said the King to the Minister of Police, for if as I am all but convinced, General Connell, who would have been so useful to us at this moment, has been murdered. His assassins... Bonapartist or not, shall be cruelly punished. It required all of Villefort's coolness not to betray the terror with which this declaration of the king inspired him. How strange, continued the king with some asperity. The police think that they have disposed of the whole matter when they say a murder has been committed, and especially so when they can add and we are on the track of the guilty persons. Sire, your majesty will, I trust, be amply satisfied on this point at least. We shall see. I will no longer detain you, monsieur de Villefort, for you must be fatigued after so long a journey. Go and rest. Of course you can stop at your father's. A feeling of faintness came over Villefort. No, sire, he replied. I alighted at the Hotel de Madrid, in the rue de Tournon. But you have seen him? Sire, I went straight to the Duc de Blacas. But you will see him then? I think not, sire. Ah, I forgot, said Louis, smiling in a manner which proved that all these questions were not made without a motive. I forgot you and Monsieur Noirtier are not on the best terms possible and that is another sacrifice made to the royal cause, and for which you should be recompensed. Sire, the kindness of your majesty deigns to evince towards me is a recompense which so far surpasses my uttermost ambition that I have nothing more to ask for. Never mind, sir. We will not forget you. Make your mind easy. In the meanwhile, the king here detached the cross of the Legion of Honour which he usually wore over his blue coat near the cross of saint louis above the order of notre-dame du mont carmel and saint lazare and gave it to villefort in the meanwhile take this cross sire said villefort your majesty mistakes this is an officer's cross ma foi said louis eighteenth take it such as it is for i have not the time to procure you another let it be your care to see that the brevet is made out and sent to monsieur de Villefort. villefort's eyes were filled with tears of joy and pride he took the cross and kissed it and now he said may i inquire what are your orders with which your majesty deigns to honour me take what rest you require and remember that if you are not able to serve me here in paris "'You may be of the greatest service to me at Marseilles.' "'Sire,' replied Villefort, bowing, "'in an hour I shall have quitted Paris.' "'Go, sir,' said the king. "'And should I forget you?' "'King's memories are short. "'Do not be afraid to bring yourself to my recollection. "'Baron, send for the Minister of War. "Blaca, remain.' "'Ah, sir!' said the minister of police to Villefort as they left the Tuileries. You entered by luck's door. Your fortune is made. Will it be long first? muttered Villefort, saluting the minister whose career was ended and looking about him for a hackney coach. One passed at the moment which he hailed. He gave his address to the driver and, springing in, threw himself on the seat and gave loose to dreams of ambition. Ten minutes afterwards, Villefort reached his hotel, ordered horses to be ready in two hours, and asked to have his breakfast brought to him. He was about to begin his repast when the sound of the bell rang sharp and loud. The valet opened the door, and Villefort heard someone speak his name. "'Who could know that I was here already?' said the young man. The valet entered. "'Well,' said Villefort, "'what is it?' Who rang? Who asked for me? A stranger. You will not send his name. A stranger who will not send in his name? What can he want with me? He wishes to speak to you. To me? Yes. Did he mention my name? Yes. What sort of person is he? Why, sir, a man of about fifty. Short or tall? About your own height, sir? Dark or fair? Dark, very dark, with black eyes, black hair, black eyebrows. And how dressed? asked Villefort quickly. In a blue frock-coat, buttoned up close, decorated with the legion of honour. It is he, said Villefort, turning pale. Et par Dieu? "'said the individual, whose description we have twice given, entering the door. "'What a great deal of ceremony! "'Is it the custom in Marseilles for sons to keep their fathers waiting in their ante-rooms?' "'Father,' cried Villefort, "'then I was not deceived. "'I felt sure it must be you.' "'Well, then, if you felt so sure,' replied the newcomer, "'putting his cane in a corner,' and his hat on a chair. Allow me to say, my dear Gérard, that it was not very filial of you to keep me waiting at the door. Leave us, Germain, said Villefort. The servant quitted the apartment with evident signs of astonishment. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Father and Son M. Noirtier, for it was indeed he who entered, looked after the servant until the door was closed, and then, fearing, no doubt, that he might be overheard in the antechamber, he opened the door again, nor was the precaution useless, as appeared from the rapid retreat of Germain, who proved that he was not exempt from the sin which ruined our first parents. Monsieur Noirtier then took the trouble to close and bolt the antechamber door, then that of the bedchamber, and then extended his hand to Villefort, who had followed all his motions with surprise which he could not conceal. "'Well, now, my dear Gérard,' said he to the young man with a very significant look, "'do you know you seem as if you were not very glad to see me?' "'My dear father,' said Villefort, "'I am on the contrary delighted.' "'but I so little expected your visit that it has somewhat overcome me.' "'But, my dear fellow,' replied Monsieur Noirtier, seating himself, "'I might say the same thing to you. "'When you announce to me your wedding for the 28th of February, "'and on the 3rd of March you turn up here in Paris, "'and if I have come, my dear father?' "'said Gérard, drawing closer to Monsieur Noirtier. "'Do not complain, for it is for you that I came, "'and my journey will be your salvation.' "'Ah, indeed,' said Monsieur Noirtier, "'stretching himself out at his ease in the chair. "'Really, pray tell me all about it, "'for it must be interesting.' "'Father, you have heard speak of a certain Bonapartist club,' in the rue saint jacques number fifty three yes i am vice president father your coolness makes me shudder why my dear boy when a man has been proscribed by the mountaineers has escaped from paris in aicat been hunted over the plains of bordeaux by robespierre's bloodhounds he becomes accustomed to most things but go on "'What about the club in Rue Saint-Jacques?' "'Why, they induced General Canel to go there, "'and General Canel, who quitted his own house at nine o'clock in the evening, "'was found the next day in the Seine.' "'And who told you this fine story?' "'The king himself.' "'Well, then, in return for your story,' continued Noirtier, "'I will tell you another.' My dear father, I think I already know what you are about to tell me. Ah, you have heard of the landing of the Emperor. Not so loud, father. I entreat you, for your own sake as well as mine. Yes, I heard this news, and knew it even before you could. For three days ago I posted from Marseille to Paris with all possible speed, half desperate at the enforced delay. Three days ago? You are crazy. Why, three days ago, the emperor had not landed. No matter, I was aware of his intention. How did you know about it? By a letter addressed to you from the island of Elba. To me? To you, and which I discovered in the pocketbook of the messenger. Had that letter fallen into the hands of another, you, my dear father would probably ere this have been shot. Villefort's father laughed. (laughs) Ha, ha, come, come, said he. Will the Restoration adopt imperial methods so promptly? Shut, my dear boy? What an idea! Where is the letter you speak of? I know you too well to suppose you would allow such a thing to pass you. "'I burnt it, for fear that even a fragment should remain, "'for that letter must have led to your condemnation.' "'And the destruction of your future prospects,' replied Noirtier. "'Yes, I can easily comprehend that. "'But I have nothing to fear while I have you to protect me. "'I do better than that, sir. I save you.' "'You do? Why, really?' The thing becomes more and more dramatic. Explain yourself. I must refer again to the club in Rue Saint-Jacques. It appears that this club is rather a bore to the police. Why didn't they search more vigilantly? They would have found, they have not found, but they are on the track. Yes, that's the usual phrase. I am quite familiar with it. When the police is at fault, it declares that it is on the track, and the government patiently awaits the day when it comes to, say, with a sneaking air, that the track is lost. Yes, but they have found a corpse. The general has been killed, and in all countries they call that a murder. A murder, do you call it? Why, There is nothing to prove that the general was murdered. People are found every day in the Seine, having thrown themselves in or having been drowned from not knowing how to swim. Father, you knew very well that the general was not a man to drown himself in despair, and people do not bathe in the Seine in the month of January. No, no, do not be deceived. This was murder in every sense of the word. "'and who thus designated it? "'The king himself. "'The king! "'I thought he was philosopher enough "'to allow that there was no murder in politics. "'In politics, my dear fellow, "'you know as well as I do, "'there are no men but ideas, "'no feelings but interests. "'In politics we do not kill a man.' We only remove an obstacle, that is all. Would you like to know how matters have progressed? Well, I will tell you. It was thought reliance might be placed in General Quenelle. He was recommended to us from the island of Elba. One of us went to him and invited him to the Rue Saint-Jacques, where he would find some friends. He came there. And the plan was unfolded to him for leaving Elba, the projected landing, etc. When he had heard and comprehended all to the fullest extent, he replied that he was a royalist. Then all looked at each other. He was made to take an oath, and did so, but with such an ill grace that it was really tempting providence to swear him, and yet... In spite of that, the general was allowed to depart free, perfectly free, yet he did not return home. What could that mean? Why, my dear fellow, that on leaving us he lost his way, that's all? A murder? Really, Villefort, you surprise me. You, a deputy procureur, "'to found an accusation on such bad premises. "'Did I ever say to you, "'when you were fulfilling your character as a royalist "'and cut off the head of one of my party, "'my son, you have committed a murder?' "'No,' I said. "'Very well, sir, you have gained the victory. "'Tomorrow, perchance, it will be our turn. "'But, father, take care.' When our turn comes, our revenge will be sweeping. I do not understand you. You rely on the usurper's return. We do. You are mistaken. He will not advance two leagues into the interior of France without being followed, tracked, and caught like a wild beast. My dear fellow, the emperor is at this moment on the way to Grenoble. On the 10th or 12th, "'He will be at Lyon, and on the 20th or 25th at Paris. "'The people will rise. "'Yes, to go and meet him. "'He has but a handful of men with him, "'and armies will be despatched against him. "'Yes, to escort him into the capital. "'Really, my dear Gérard, you are but a child. "'You think yourself well-informed, because the telegraph has told you, three days after the landing, the usurper has landed at Cannes with several men. He is pursued. But where is he? What is he doing? You do not know at all. And in this way they will chase him to Paris without drawing a trigger. Grenoble and Lyon are faithful cities and will oppose him to an impassable barrier. Grenoble will open her gates to him with enthusiasm. "'All Lyon will hasten to welcome him. "'Believe me, we are as well informed as you, "'and our police are as good as your own. "'Would you like a proof of it? "'Well, you wish to conceal your journey from me, "'and yet I knew of your arrival half an hour "'after you had passed the barrier.' You gave your direction to no one but your postilion. Yet I have your address. And in proof I am here, the very instant you are going to sit at table. Ring, then, if you please, for a second knife, fork, and plate, and we will dine together. Indeed, replied Villefort, looking at his father with astonishment, "'You really do seem very well informed.' "'Eh? The thing is simple enough. "'You who are in power of only the means that money produces. "'We who are in expectation have those with devotion prompts.' "'Devotion?' said Villefort with a sneer. "'Yes, devotion, for that is, I believe, the phrase for hopeful ambition.' And Villefort's father extended his hand to the bell-rope to summon the servant whom his son had not called. Villefort caught his arm. "'Wait, my dear father,' said the young man, "'one word more.' "'Say on.' "'However stupid the royalist police may be, "'they do know one terrible thing.' "'And what is that?' The description of the man who, on the morning of the day when General Quesnel disappeared, presented himself at his house. Oh, the admirable police have found that out, have they? And what may be that description? Dark complexion, hair, eyebrows, and whiskers black, blue frock coat buttoned up to the chin, rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honor in his buttonhole, "'a hat with wide brim, and a cane. "'Aha, that is it,' said Noirtier. "'And why, then, have they not laid hands on him?' "'Because yesterday or the day before "'they lost sight of him at the corner of the Rue Cocheron.' "'Didn't I say that your police were good for nothing?' "'Yes, but they may catch him yet.' "'True.' "'said Noirtier, looking carelessly around him. "'True if this person were not on his guard as he is,' "'and he added with a smile. "'He will consequently make a few changes in his personal appearance.' "'At these words he rose and put off his frock-coat and cravat, "'went towards a table on which he lay his son's toilet articles, "'lathered his face, took a razor and, with a firm hand, "'Cut off the compromising whiskers.' "'Villefort watched him with alarm, not devoid of admiration. "'His whiskers cut off. Noirtier gave another turn to his hair, "'took instead of his black cravat "'a coloured neckerchief which lay at the top of an open portmanteau, "'put on in Lurevay's blue and high-buttoned frock-coat, "'a coat of Villefort's of dark brown, and cut away in front,' "'tried on before the glass a narrow-brimmed hat of his son's, "'which appeared to fit him perfectly, "'and leaving his cane in the corner where he had deposited it, "'he took up a small bamboo switch, "'cut the air with it once or twice, "'and walked about with that easy swagger "'which has one of his principal characteristics. "'Well,' he said, turning towards his wandering son, "'when his disguise was completed,' "'Well, do you think your police will recognize me now?' "'No, father,' stammered Villefort. "'At at least I hope not.' "'And now, my dear boy,' continued Noirtier, "'I rely on your prudence to remove all the things which I leave in your care.' "'Oh, rely on me,' said Villefort. "'Yes, yes, and now I believe you are right.' and that you have really saved my life. Be assured I will return the favour hereafter. Villefort shook his head. You are not convinced yet. I hope at least that you may be mistaken. Shall you see the king again? Perhaps. Would you pass in his eyes for a prophet? Prophets of evil are not in favour at the court, father. True, but some day they do them justice. And supposing a second restoration, you would then pass for a great man. Well, what should I say to the king? Say to him, Sire, you are deceived as to the feeling in France, as to the opinions of the towns and the prejudices of the army. He whom in Paris you call the Corsican ogre who at Nevers is styled the usurper, is already saluted as Bonaparte at Lyon and Emperor at Grenoble. You think he is tracked, pursued, captured. He is advancing as rapidly as his own eagles. The soldiers you believe to be dying with hunger, worn out with fatigue, ready to desert, "'Gather like atoms of snow about the rolling ball as it hastens onward. "'Sire, go. Leave France to its real master, to him who acquired it, "'not by purchase, but by right of conquest. "'Go, sire. Not that you incur any risk, "'for your adversary is powerful enough to show you mercy.' but because it would be humiliating for a grandson of Saint-Louis to owe his life to the man of Arcola, Marengo, Ostalitz, Tell him this, Gérard, or rather tell him nothing. Keep your journey a secret. Do not boast of what you have come to Paris to do, or have done. Return with all speed. Enter Marseille at night and your house by the back door and there remain quiet, submissive, secret, and, above all, inoffensive. For this time I swear to you, we shall act like powerful men who know their enemies. Go, my son, go, my dear Gérard, and by your obedience to my paternal orders, or, if you prefer it, friendly counsels, we will keep you in your place. This will be, added Noirtier with a smile, one means by which you may a second time save me. If the political balance should some day take another turn and cast you aloft while hurling me down. Adieu, my dear Gérard, and at your next journey, alight at my door. Noirtier left the room when he had finished, with the same calmness that had characterized him during the whole of this remarkable and trying conversation. Villefort, pale and agitated, ran to the window, put aside the curtain, and saw him pass, cool and collected, by two or three ill-looking men at the corner of the street, who were there, perhaps, to arrest a man with black whiskers and a blue frock-coat and hat with broad brim. Villefort stood watching, breathless, until his father had disappeared at the Rue Bussy. Then he turned to the various articles he had left behind him, put the black cravat and blue frock coat at the bottom of the portmanteau, threw the hat into a dark closet, broke the cane into small bits and flung it in the fire, put on his travelling cap, and, calling his valet, checked with a look the thousand questions he was ready to ask, paid his bill, sprang into his carriage, which was ready, learned at Lyon that Bonaparte had entered Grenoble, and in the midst of the tumult which prevailed along the road, at length reached Marseille, a prey to all the hopes and fears which enter into the heart of man with ambition and its first successes. End of chapter 12
0: I have to say, I love listening to this book so much. And before I found David Clark's version, I had gone to Audible and i had actually downloaded B.J. Harrison's version from Audible. B.J., who's reading our current very funny premium audiobook, Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog. And actually, his Count of Monte Cristo is one of the reasons why I dug around and found a way to contact him to find out if he would record Three Men in a Boat for us. And so it's his voices that are in my head when I'm listening to, or even now reading the text of these chapters. And now that I have the extra added advantage of having Sarah to talk to, I have this lovely French voice in my head as I'm reading or reading annotations or reading informational stuff. And it's it's so nice. And it made me think about how excited I am to be going to Paris this fall and how lucky I am to be able to meet up with several people who I wouldn't have been able to meet up with before. But also, knowing that the trip has been planned by Diane, who's so good at this. And so we we do Giverny, which is where Monet did his water lilies. And then we get to go to Victor Hugo's house. And Sarah and I actually talked a little bit about Victor Hugo and... Dumas and how they both were part of a real movement in French literature.
3: It was a whole new world of possibilities. Mm. So these people could do anything they wanted and or they thought so and they tried. And so they were always inventing things and doing things and I don't think they had any fear. So Dumas for example, he traveled a lot. He wrote for the theater. For he wrote novels. He had many, many love affairs with different women. Um, he was he knew everybody. He he had newspapers. He wrote as a journalist. Uh, he wrote a cookbook. So many different things. I mean, it's just. It's mind blowing. They could do what they wanted. And that was quite new, actually, because Dumas was middle class and um, lower middle class. Lower middle. Yeah. And a uh, hundred years before, he would have been a cook in, in his mother's um, hotel or something like that. Right. You... And then after the French Revolution, he just could do what he wanted. Well, Within. if he had the ability to write so um Dumas was not absolutely the first one to do that the first one to do that was Eugène Sue, who wrote the mystery of Paris in 1842 it was the first serialist roman feuilleton serialist novel uh in published in the French newspaper and it was a huge a, a huge success worldwide it was adapted, translated in every language. I think the book itself—it must be two thousand pages long—or but like Dumas, yep. Monte Cristo is very is, is a very long novel. Like uh, Victor Hugo, Les Misérables is two thousand pages also. And um, Victor Hugo um, tried to imitate. I think he did something quite different but his first idea in Les Misérables was to to write like Eugène Sue in Les Mystères de Paris, The Mysteries of Paris. So all this is connected. They were inventing a new kind, a a new way to to tell stories Mm -hmm. which um, which very much like TV series with uh, many many characters and uh, uh, you can start a TV series one year and then wait one year to see the other the the next season even if you have forgotten things it's not very hard to reconnect to Mm -hmm. a new season
0: well you have now been introduced to one of my favorite characters Noitier Viefur's father I find their relationship absolutely fascinating. They are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And yet by the end of this chapter, they really do seem to love each other. It's just, it's just the most bizarre relationship. And you know, I didn't get the sense that either of them wanted to see the other one dead. I mean, Viofor did what he did specifically to save his father's life. And his father, even though he was giving him a hard time about it, he didn't flaunt his culpability in the murder. Because as he said, he knew that that would directly affect four. and even though he's going to make fun of his son's ambition, he doesn't want to get him busted or ruined. Now, there's some interesting stuff going on with the Legion of Honor medal. four was given one by the king, which obviously is a big deal, and Noirtier has one on his blue jacket.
3: So the Legion of Honor is, how do you call that, a decoration, Um, which uh, is given to people who have well served the nation. So there are different grades in in this decoration. The first one being Chevalier, and then you have Officer, officier, and then I don't remember, and then the upper rank is Grand Croix de la Légion And it's the most important civil decoration in France. It still is today. So, when Villefort gets his decoration, it is because he has been useful to, um, to the country by, by denouncing the plot, the conspiration, and the king, instead of telling him you will be decorated, I give you the cross, he gives him his own decoration, which is not chevalier, the first uh, stage, the lower stage of uh, the lower rank of this this cross, but his own cross, which is um, the rank of officer so Villefort is suddenly very proud of his decoration and it having been given to him by the king is all the more important, of course, and um, gratifying. His father was um, decorated for having played an important part in the French Revolution and in the First Empire, okay. having been a, uh, a senator. And so they are, I think Dumas did that in order to make them equals in different parties, of course, with different opinions. And they could be rivals or enemies. We will see, we shall see. <laughs> but they have to be kind of equals. Mm-hmm. So that's I think that is why they are both decorative, why they all they both have the cross.
0: There are many layers going on here. The cross of the Legion of Honor started out as a medal that was given for service to the country, and it only started after the French Revolution. and I believe it was Napoleon who started it in like eighteen o four, I think. somewhere around there, right around the time Dumas was born. So you have this emblem representative of France, and there's symbology all over the thing. And along with the cross, which wasn't a cross like a Jesus cross, it's a cross like a medallion cross. It's kind of star-like. There was another emblem that Napoleon both wore and had on deck to hand out, which was an eagle the Legion of Honor has changed its design several times, maybe even more than several times, since it was originally created. It had, at one point, Napoleon's face on it. It had Josephine's face on it. It had fleur-de-lis on it. At this time period, it should have had fleur-de-lis on it. My guess is that Noitier's Legion of Honor was given during Napoleon's time and probably had one kind of decoration on it. And the Legion of Honor medal medallion that V4 has been given by the king would be decorated differently. And there was one line, it was either the king or Blachar said, about uh, Napoleon and his eagles, or his eagle marching. And that's this emblem, this medallion. And the eagle, uh, the Grand Aigle, this other, other medallion was the highest level. And the important thing about what Napoleon did with this Legion of Honor was that unlike previous medals that could have been given out by the monarch, those were often tied to the estate you were in. So for example, if you were uh, religious, if you were Roman Catholic and you were something you did was important to the church, you would be given the medal for that. If you were a military officer and you performed well, then your monarch might give you the Legion honor for that or the medallion that was available at the time. Going along with the Liberte Egalite fraternite thing, Napoleon would give this to people who merited it, just people. And it was the first time that some kind of honorific like this wasn't limited to class or a religious quadrant of the society. And in fact, showing how progressive this was, there were women who got this. There were three women initially, one of them was a nun, uh, but all of them had performed some act of importance for Napoleon or during his reign, during the First Empire. And Vifor's response to getting the Legion of Honor, that was real. I mean, his eyes teared up. He's such an interesting character because he seems so too cool for school, you know? He's just trying to calculate what must happen next in order to move along the trajectory that he wants to see for himself and his family. And his family, meaning his soon-to-be wife and her family, because clearly they are important to him and his advancement. And he he doesn't seem necessarily cynical. I mean, he really was thrown with what happened to Edmond, Or at least he seemed to be. But this moment of recognition from the king, he tears up, and he is he is moved. And he knows. He knows it's his dad who's implicated in this murder, right? We didn't necessarily know it was his father, but we knew something was going on. And so when his dad walks in the door, did you immediately think, whoa, so your spies, oh, Mr. Nortier, your spies are better than the king's? Because how else is he going to know that is there? has made it very clear to us and everybody else that he was not going to see his father. Partly because that would risk implicating him. And also because he didn't really have time. He wanted to get back. His girl's waiting for him. (laughs) He had to run off. He's an interesting, interesting character. And we're going to see more and more of that from him. We got a voicemail this week about a mistake that I made, or at least maybe partly made, but I want to play you the audio and then ask a question. So here is our voicemail.
5: Hello, Heather. This is Sarah Blake. I am a week behind, and you made a little comment about not knowing how everybody didn't have ulcers from the stress, and the answer is because ulcers are caused by bacteria, not stress, as was long believed. There's a bacteria that causes ulcers. I don't remember what it's called. It was discovered by scientists in Perth, Australia, um, who basically swallowed a bunch of the bacteria and gave himself ulcers um, in order to prove that that was caused. So stress really only causes ulcers in as much as it makes it easier to get in with any kind of bacteria or virus because your immune system is not working as properly when you're stressed. So, yeah, I just wanted to point out because ever since I learned that about ulcers, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. ulcers are caused by bacteria. And yeah, it's very exciting. Okay, that's all.
0: Bye. So I did remember that ulcers were caused by by bacteria and not by stress. The way that we used to think, like it was the acid eating your stomach lining away, and that was how you wound up getting an ulcer. I remembered reading about the bacteria thing. I thought that the way that stress was now understood to play a part, and this is where the question is, because I don't know if I'm right, was that when you're stressed, you can affect the pH in your stomach, and that somehow the stress was throwing the chemical balance in your stomach off in a way that made it possible for that bacteria to overwhelm the environment and that's what was causing the ulcer that the basically that the bacteria was always there. It was only when the environment became stressed from stress (laughs) that that you were starting to see things like ulcers happening. But see I don't know if that's true. However I'm fairly certain that one of you will know. So call air code 206-350-1642, and let us know. All right, it's been a big, long one. You have a great week. I will have a great week. We will all have great weeks, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlit.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.